We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. As we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves at the very center of this book, declaring the work and ministry of Jesus. Something else I probably don't have to tell you this morning is that it is an unofficial national holiday. Um, yeah, that's right. The uh, NFL Super Bowl falls on a Sunday this year. So uh, we're, whatever you're doing after this, there will be a, a, an opportunity probably to eat food, to hang out, and to watch football. It might be more appropriately called the Super Bet because today is also uh, the nation's largest gambling opportunity. It's an estimated $16 billion will be wagered on a variety of different questions revolving around this one sporting event. And it's worth thinking about some of this. And by no means is this an endorsement of gambling. In fact, please don't. But there's a number of questions that people will be answering with their money this morning. Let me share a couple with you. Uh, you can wager this morning on which team will win the coin toss. You can also wager on whether or not it'll be heads or tails. So don't waste too much time analyzing the data on that. It's probably 50-50. <laughs> you can wager how many times the referees will have to come out and, and, and measure whether or not it was a first down with the chains. You can gamble on what color the Gatorade will be that they pour on top of the coach of the winning team. And maybe my favorite, you can, you can place a bet on whether or not someone is going to run out on the field during the game. And if you pay attention to the Super Bowl, you know that two years ago, someone ran out on the field, and that very same person bet that someone would run out on the field. So <laughs> there's some shrewd wisdom to be, to be uh, honored, I suppose. Now, all of those questions with wagers behind them probably, I hope, seem very trivial to you. At best, if you're a football fan, you may feel like they're trivial because the real question is, who is going to win the game? But I hate to break it to you, that is also a very trivial question. But it does point out something that's inside of the way God designed the human heart, that we are designed to receive questions and give an answer. And every one of you this morning have already answered countless questions just to be sitting in the chair right now. You all had a question as to what time to wake up. A lot of you decided to hit the snooze button and come to second service. Uh, you had a question as to what to eat and what to wear and what route to take and even whether or not to come to church at all. And in all of the questions of life, it is a reminder that your life is built on how you give an answer. And the daily decision may seem trivial, but you're reminded that your life is built on big questions as well. And I don't have to remind some of you that there are the big questions of life that stir around your heart and mind right now. Who will you marry someday? Uh, what will you do with your education? What should your major be? What will your career be? How can you grow your business? How can you reconcile relationships? And those questions, the bigger life questions, are actually fundamentally built on even deeper questions still, questions of the soul that we all wrestle with, that have been implanted upon your heart and your mind 
by the spark of divinity given to you by God, where did you come from existentially? And where are you going? What will happen when you die? Every one of you have thought about it. Every one of you have wrestled with the question. And then in between, what are you supposed to be doing with your life to give you any sort of purpose and meaning? Questions that are unavoidable that will demand an answer. And none of those questions can be answered with indecision. Because the reality is indecision itself is an answer. Some people this morning thought about whether or not they should come to church and join us. And as they were thinking... They thought about what they should wear and what they should eat and how to get there and who they should invite or who they should go with. And then something happened as they failed to give an answer. Church happened. We're here. If they didn't decide on one of those questions, the question was answered for them. And so it is with the questions of your life and ultimately the question of your soul. It is unavoidable. The question will be answered. And underlying all of those questions, the fundamental question of all of them, and the reason we're even bringing it up this morning, is because all of our study in the Gospel of Mark has been leading to one critical moment. We are at the exact halfway point of the Gospel. Mark chapter 8 out of 16 chapters is a perfect pinnacle of the entire Gospel of Mark. All of the miracles and teachings and interactions that Jesus had with people in need and religious leaders are all pointing to one question. And everything that will happen from the remainder of the gospel will all flow from one question. And it is the question that underlies everything else, whether you know it or not. It's the fundamental question of your soul. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Everything so far has been pointing us to this question, and, and now we're going to have a moment where the question will be posed not by the Gospel of Mark, writer, not by some of the disciples, but by Jesus himself. And it is with this in mind where we answer the question ourselves. And just like the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8 is often called the continental divide of the Gospel. Everything building up to this brings us to the pinnacle of the mountaintop. Who is Jesus? Everything after this flows from it. What do we do about it? It is the same truth about your life. How you answer the question of who is Jesus will be the continental divide of your life. It is a question that you cannot answer with indecision, and it is a question that you cannot avoid. It will fall on your ears this morning. And with this question, we do not wager time, and we do not wager simply money, we do not wager resources. We do not wager simply a Sunday morning or a little bit of money. This is a question that you must wager your life with. This is a question that will determine the course and the destiny of your life. And so we ask the question, starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? I have found it helpful in our study in this gospel to continually try to focus our, the eyes of our mind on the scene before us. 
And the Gospel of Mark is short in word, but it's rich with details that are important to every scene that he gives us. This one is telling us that he's walking with his disciples. This is a question for people that are following Jesus closely. Oftentimes we hear the word disciple and we think of the original 12, but it's more common that the disciples were anyone who was following Jesus, listening to his teachings, and then being commissioned or obeying his teaching. And this one also says that he's on the road. They're walking together. They haven't got to where they're going. This is like a moment where Jesus is having that road trip conversation with his disciples, and he looks over to them, and he says, who do men say that I am? In other words, what is the word on the street? Uh, time and time again, we study this, and there are crowds of people responding to all of the works of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And this is the moment where Jesus says, after two and a half years of watching this and interacting with people and listening to the word on the street, today's the test. Today's the pop quiz. What are people saying about me? And so we'll pause here. This is the first of two questions on the exam this morning. And the first is popular opinion. And popular opinion of their day is not unlike popular opinion of our day. The disciples answer in verse 28, verse 28 some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. None of these are the right answer, but they're not all totally wrong either. All of these are reference points to things about the ministry and work of Jesus that could be likened to these men or these people. And common of that day, common of our day, most of the comparisons or answers for the general consensus of who Jesus is hold him in high regard. I don't know where all of you are in your commitment to following Jesus as a disciple, but I can guess that most of you, if you are like the majority of the people who have had to interact with the teachings and the reputation of Jesus, you can find him as a respectable person. And so when they say John the Baptist, this is someone who is esteemed in their day as a moral reformer, calling someone to forgiveness of sins through baptism. That's an esteem and an honor to be compared to him. And the same with Elijah, one of the great prophets of old as a miracle worker. Uh, the only person who had more miraculous power than Elijah that was his understudy, Elisha. But to be compared to him was to say that Jesus is clearly a great miracle worker. And many people expected Elijah to come on the scene as a prepar preparation for Jesus. So they saw maybe Jesus himself as someone that was preparing the ground for the Messiah to come. What a great honor to be compared to him. And others say one of the prophets. Uh, the prophets, in a word, are simply the mouthpiece of God, the messengers of God. Never popular in their own day, but oftentimes as people look back on their teachings and their call to uh, turn to God and away from sin, they were esteemed as the great people of the Old Testament. And much like that in our day, whatever you think of Jesus it is hard to disagree with him as someone of honor. You'll hear many people that have a problem with what we are doing right now, the collection of the followers of Jesus. Someone once said famously, I don't mind Jesus, it's his followers I can't stand. So sorry to add to that problem. 
many people have a problem with the church. Many people have a problem with Christians. Many people have a problem with organized religion in general. But it's very rare that someone can look at the life and ministry of Jesus and have a problem with him. So he's regarded in high esteem. And as is true of your life, it is true of all of the religions of the world, they, Jesus demands an answer. And even as you study the different worldviews and different religions, giving an answer for who Jesus is, he is regarded highly. Here are some different answers you may find on your journey to the truth through different worldviews. The Muslim will say that Jesus is a prophet. He's just not the Savior. A Jehovah's Witness is happy to, to qualify Jesus as an angel. He's just not God. Uh, likely a Mormon will be happy to grant you that Jesus is a God. He's just not the God, the visible image of the invisible God. Even a Buddhist who is less firm on what it is to even believe in God is happy to say that Jesus is one of the great enlightened humans who's ever lived. And remove religion altogether, and if you just want to be a good person and have a good view on someone that you can follow, a humanist, a moralist, Jesus is an example that you can model your life after. In the category of Mr. Rogers, great fun for kids to learn about and something positive for us to think about, and he's safe and containable. The problem is, in all of their esteem... They're not totally wrong, but they're totally not right. And this is the moment where we have to realize that the general consensus of who Jesus is is typically completely falling short of who Jesus himself declares to be. And as we read this and study this, a good lesson for us, as, as those, for those of us who want to model our lives after, after Jesus, what, what this is, is not an exercise in public relations. Jesus is not asking his disciples to take a survey so that he can help them with a class on apologetics so that he can under, they can understand how to improve public opinion. This is actually an exercise in how often the crowds and the consensus are totally wrong. To be a disciple and a follower means that you go beyond the consensus of the street and you go into the reality of who Christ says he is. And so now we get a much more personal, a much more important question. Now the exam is not about a general opinion of Jesus. He asked the most important question of the world. He now turns to his disciples and he says, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? This is a reminder to all of us that there is no use identifying with a secondary opinion of Jesus. As we already stated, this will be a question according to the orthodoxy of what we believe about where you are going that demands an answer for your soul and it will be no use leaving your answer at what you heard about Jesus. Well, in my day, here's what my culture and the public opinion and the, my favorite pastor said about Jesus. 
When the day for you to give an account, when this moment comes in your life and you come to your own moment of the continental divide, the question will be, who do you say that Jesus is? How you answer this question will determine what you believe about your purpose, about your future destiny, about who God is and about who people are, and ultimately who you are. This is the question that answers all other questions. And what we're about to do is celebrate the answer that is given as the light of the world shining on the hearts of people who see Christ as he truly is. And Peter is going to be used in this exercise as both, as both a voice of the honor of the question answered correctly. And then in the second part of this, we'll see Peter as an exercise in futility, how quickly the right answer can turn into the wrong application. But first, it says, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. If we had a Hebrew translation, it would say, you are the Messiah. You are the one that everyone has been waiting for, sent by God to be the greater Moses, the ultimate prophet, the greater Elijah, the one that John the Baptist pointed everyone to. You are the anointed one of God sent to save us. And it is on this answer that every person li person's life will live and die. We haven't done this at all through the Gospel of Mark, but of course Mark is one of the synoptic Gospels along with Luke and Matthew that tell similar stories of the same moments. And I find it helpful for this morning to actually look at the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew so that we can get even more detail about this glorious moment where the whole pinnacle of the work of Jesus points us to why he does everything he does so that we can see him as he truly is. And as Peter gives this answer in Matthew, Jesus will actually tell him what happens to anyone who believes in such a way. In Matthew chapter 16, right after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says two fundamental things for us who believe. First, he says, the revelation of this comes from the Father. It was not flesh and bones. It was not human design or human mind or human logic or human reason where you were smarter than someone next to you. You were more well-researched. You studied the scriptures better than everyone else. He says to Peter, you're blessed because the Father revealed this to you. And it's important for us to point that out so that we would understand where this revelation come from at all. All of the last two sermons could be summed up in a sermon titled called People That Struggle to See. 
The Pharisees couldn't see Jesus and the miraculous power as a sign that he was sent from God. The disciples themselves struggled to see all of the teachings of Jesus and what the parables truly meant. And that led us to last week when we saw a literal blind man who struggled to see anything at all physically. And we looked at that and we realized that Mark placed that perfectly in the account of the gospel to point us towards a moment where someone goes from blindness to sight. Think about the questions that Jesus already asked. Who do men say that I am? He says, what are you hearing? Before you can see, all you can do is hear. Before you have sight, you have all you have is the sense of, of your ears to pick up the sounds around you. And then Jesus says, as you followed me, who do you say that I am? Or maybe, maybe better stated, what do you see in me? And Peter confesses that he sees the Christ. And Jesus says, that is a revelation from God. In some ways, that is the foundation of our praise and our worship, that God has saw us fit to open our blinded eyes in our heart, in our blinded mind, so that when we come here this morning, we are able to see Jesus as he is. It is a gift of God. It is a revelation from the falling of the Holy Spirit upon all who seek him genuinely in faith to know him. The Holy Spirit comes and says, here is who Jesus is. Praise God for all of you who know who Jesus is. It is a gift from God that he placed you in this time and the places of your dwellings, that he used the circumstances of your life, that you reached out and you cried up to heaven and God met you with the power of his Holy Spirit and opened your eyes so that you can see the Jesus as the Christ. And as we praise him for that, we now understand how incredible it is when Jesus says, Peter, you're blessed. So if nothing else, you take nothing else from this message, as you have come here, if you worship Jesus this morning, if you read this word as the word of God living for your life to feed your soul, today you are blessed. You are set apart and unique. There are dark places in this world that groan for purpose and meaning and wonder about their destiny. And we send missionaries that they would have a moment that you have experienced. You know Jesus as king. Let me share how one Bible teacher says it, R.C. Sproul. If ever you cry, why me? In the midst of affliction, hear these words. Blessed are you, for you have been given spiritual sight to see the most precious treasure this world will ever know. If God never gives you another blessing for the rest of your days on earth, you would have all you need to crawl over glass to proclaim his grace and mercy because the greatest gift you will ever know is simply seeing Jesus as Christ. Christ, the word for king, king of creation, king of salvation, 
king of this world, king of the kingdom of God, king of your heart, king of your mind, king of your life. If you know this Jesus, you have the blessing of God on your life. And if you don't see this Jesus yet, if you still feel like someone who can only hear what other people say about who Jesus is, the question that you're wrestling with is, how can my blinded eyes be opened? Leading up to the account we read in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus actually gives an answer to that that I'll share with you now. I hope that you will take this as an invitation to see if it's true for your own life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Our God meets you in your searching. He has given you the life and the appointed boundaries of your dwelling so that you would search for him and find him. He longs for you to be made a child of God. And so as we close service today, I'm going to invite all of you who have not seen Jesus as Christ, as King, to put this verse to test. To say, God, I want to know you. I am seeking to see you. And your word says, if I seek, I will find. And I can tell you that the testimony of every person in here who will worship Jesus at the end of this service as king is a testimony of someone who sought him and knocked on the door of salvation and it was swung open with the grace of God. And wouldn't it be wonderful if this was the end of the story? A simple message to get you started for a celebration and a feast later today. Christ is king. Go forth and conquer. And yet we now get a moment between Jesus and Peter that all of us need to hear to remind us that even as we see the glory of Christ for the first time, even as we see him, as we follow him, we have these moments where we don't fully trust him yet. To have faith in him as king is different than to have faith in him as Lord. And so the word continues to give us a lesson that we must have whenever there is revelation from God. In verse 30, it says that he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And usually in this moment, the answer that I give is that he's playing crowd control. It's not time for the crowds to grow. There's a mission that goes beyond this. But in this moment, it is so important for them to not go and declare this yet. Why? Because they don't fully know the plan. And isn't it true on the day of salvation, we see Christ as Savior, but we're not fully aware of the plan yet. And sometimes the person of Christ and the plans of God can collide in our hearts. And we're going to get a picture of that in verse 31. It says in verse 31, and he began to teach them. Wherever there is revelation, there must be education. <laughs> Wherever God gives you a word or an insight, it is time for further learning so that you know what the application is. And as they get revelation of Christ, they're now going to get revelation of the call. As they get revelation of the Messiah, they're now going to get revelation of the mission 
that the Messiah was on. And these two things are going to collide in their worlds in the same way it will collide in your world. Christ means king, right? Christ means crown. Christ means throne. Christ means scepter of justice and mercy. And yet, before the crown, there is a cross. Our Christ, our king, is not like any other ruler that the world has ever known. He is not a king that comes to be served, but a king that comes to serve. And when this mission begins to unfold, it is so hard to hear. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke these things openly, no longer speaking in the code of parables or in the living parable of miracles. He now says, here it is. As the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind to who God is in the invisible image of Christ, he now says, read the word, here it is. And it will surprise you the mission is different than what you're thinking, sometimes what you're expecting, even what you're hoping for. The mission was not simply a crown. The mission was a cross. And as he spoke these things openly, and Peter finally sees what he actually confessed, Peter took him aside politely as to not embarrass him in front of the disciples. And it says he began to rebuke him. He began to argue with him. A sensitive retelling of the word rebuke would be to strongly disagree. This could be rooted in Peter's love for Jesus. I don't want that for you. It could be rooted in Peter's desire for what he was expecting the Messiah to do, to take the throne, to get the Roman occupation out, and to restore the kingdom of David for all of its glory. A less sensitive understanding of the word rebuke would be the word shut up. And so we see the intensity of this moment. And we also see ourselves in this moment. This moment was never supposed to be between just Jesus and Peter, because this moment exists for all disciples who aim to follow the Christ. And we know that because in verse 35 it says, when he had turned around and looked at all of his disciples, bringing them into the conversation, knowing that they too would have their confusion about a king that wears a cross before he dons a crown, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And here is the crux of Christ as king and you as disciple. You can fall in love with the person of Christ. And you can completely rebuke the plans of God. And as we look at all of these things, we look at people with great expectation and hopes and desires and they were utterly disappointed at what the plan actually was. 
and this is the beginning of following Christ, that you are now going to not only believe in him, but also believe in his mission. You are not only going to put Christ in your mind, but you are going to have your mind renewed to become the mind of God. So that you don't just see Christ, but you see everything else in light of him. And that is why the lesson is that you're thinking like a man, Peter. You're not thinking like God. And we also find ourselves in a continental divide that is not just God and man, but it is God and Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Bob Dylan once said, you got to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that is the continental divide. And in this moment, it is not that Peter was possessed by Satan or that Satan was literally illuminating Peter or giving words to Peter, but Peter was aligned with the core mission of Satan, which is to tempt the believer away from the mission. Satan is the tempter. Mark chapter 4, Satan comes on the scene as Jesus is praying and fasting and preparing himself for the mission of the cross, and Satan shows up and says, why don't you just bow before my feet and I'll give you everything now? Let's take the cross out of the equation. And Satan tempts your life in the same way. When suffering comes your way and rejection comes your way, and when you are faced with your moment of death, the question is, could God really redeem these things or is there a way to see glory without them? Christ says to Peter, stop tempting me. Stop putting yourself between me and the cross. You're aligning yourself with Satan. You are not aligning yourself with the mission of God. The mission of God is a Christ to redeem the lost. The mission of God is that by death, Christ would bring life. And that is why in my Bible I've underlined verse 31 when he says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die. It was not just good advice. It was not an idea. It was not a strategy of the kingdom. It was the plan from the foundations of the earth that God so loved the fallen world that he would send his son into the world so that all who are perishing because of sin and all that suffer because of sin and evil and the penalty of sin, which is death, would not perish but have life in his name. The mission was the wrath of God poured out on the cross of Christ. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but then the plan of God, his son, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, death brings life. It is the gospel. It is what makes Christ the king. And in his moment of greatest temptation, the night before the mission would go down on the cross, he said, Father, if there is any other way, will you remove this cup from me? The cup of the wrath of God poured out to forgive the sinners of the world. Nevertheless, 
Not my will be done, but your will be done. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die. It always surprises people when I tell them that because God is so good, he cannot forgive you of your sins. He can't just say, okay, I like you so much, you're forgiven. You seem like such a nice person, you're forgiven. I'm going to take you at your word that you're not going to sin anymore, but you always will, so just come into heaven anyway. Because God is so holy and so just, sin must be paid for. And the penalty of sin is death. The wrath of God poured out on sin so that all of the unholiness of sin is dealt with so that man could bridge the gap between unholy world and holy God. And the Son of Man must go through suffering and death to get there. And that is why Christ is not a moral teacher only. That's why Christ is not just a miracle worker. He is not just a sage with good advice and fortune cookies. He is not just the person in front of the church building with the name to let you know what religion we belong to. Christ is the suffering servant that came to die that you might live, and there's no other name that will save your life. And this is what the great continental divide of your life is. Who is Christ? Is he your savior? And is he your Lord? And you may ask, why did Jesus have to open the playbook for his disciples to wrestle with such a scary and confusing and daunting mission? We're on the other side of the cross. We hear it and we accept it by faith. Couldn't everyone have heard it and accepted by faith? Why didn't he just do the cross and then tell Peter and the disciples what happened? Because if you are actually going to follow Jesus, to be his agents of love and mercy and grace on this world, you must know the mission of Jesus. And that's why it's no small mistake that Jesus now will explain to Peter and all of his disciples and you and I, why this lesson is so important for your life, not just your theology. And so we'll look at this one final verse. We're going to spend all of next week looking at the entire passage, often called the cost of discipleship. But this one verse answers the question why you cannot have the theology of Jesus as Christ without the theology of Jesus on the cross. Verse 34, when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever, other translations could say anyone, we could say every single person who desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus as Christ must be understood as the Christ on the cross because if you are going to follow him, you must be like him. The things of men hate rejection. It's our biggest fear. We hate suffering. We avoid it at all costs. And we fear death. It's a billion-dollar industry to try to make people young all over the world because we don't want to admit that we're slowly dying. But here's the things of God. 
The things of God is that all of those things will be turned on their heads and the part that Peter missed, the part that we missed, the theology that we completely leave vacated is the promise of the end of verse 31 that you cannot escape as a follower of Christ. He must be He must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, and after three days, he must rise again. Peter stopped listening at he must die. And we stop believing at rejection. We stop confessing at suffering. We stop hoping at death. But Jesus says, anyone who follows me, pick up their cross. They must die and they must rise. Anyone who follows me will give me their life. They will lose their life for my sake and then I'll give it back to them with more abundance and more joy. And there's nothing that you will forsake in this life and the life to come that Jesus will not bless you with now and in heaven in ways that far exceed what you think to ask. And so we come back to where we started. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you confess with your lips and who do you believe with your life? This is not a wager of Sunday mornings. This is not a wager of tithing. This is not a wager of time or good works. This is a wager of your life. And the promise is, if you give your life to Christ, Christ will give you life eternal. On the third day, he rises. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he now sits on the right hand of the Father. And we who are in Christ, have our names written in the book of life. After we suffer, after we're rejected, and after we die, we have life eternal, who is Christ. So we do this every Sunday, but maybe more importantly, this Sunday, we hold these elements in our hands, crackers and some juice, the body and the blood of Christ, and we declare it. We say he's not just the king, he is the suffering servant. And it says in the word that every time we take communion, we declare his death until he comes. Until he comes means because he's alive. So you declare the death of Christ. You also hold your own cross. You also say that rejection awaits you this week and this month and this life. And suffering is something you're going through right now. And there is a fear of death that hangs over humanity like a shadow. And we hold our hands. We declare death, knowing that we have more powerful life. And I'd be remiss to not invite some of you who have never gone beyond the word on the street. You've heard what people say about Christ. You've heard the consensus. You've heard the pastors. You've heard the teachers. But you've never confessed. If you seek him, you'll find him. And if you confess with your lips that he is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the grave, you will be saved. And that can happen in a miraculous moment as fast as Jesus heals a blind man and gives him sight. He can give you sight to see Christ as king who died on a cross for your sins. So why don't we stand? I'd like to pray for all of us to hold these elements in our hands with a desire to follow 
Jesus. God, we love you and we worship you. We know that we're growing and longing and desiring more of you. But Lord, on Sunday mornings, it is so easy for us to confess with our lips, but have hearts that are far from you. To wager our Sundays, but hold on to our lives. So Lord, help us day by day by day by day to pick up a cross, believing that your cross led to our life. And our cross will lead to the joy and the endurance of the perfect will of God for our lives. And for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, the word says, just as you said, let there be light. Your Holy Spirit comes and shines light in our hearts. May that happen for anyone who desires to know you as their Savior this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.